Namo etasa bhagavatu arahatu asama sambuddhasa Namo etasa bhagavatu So the last time I was here, I, uh, I gave a talk. Um, the theme was Love, Sex, and Awakening. Can I just see hands of people who are either here for that talk or who listen to the recording? So uh, about half weren't. Um, it was a rich talk, and the topics were quite... Um, I went into quite some detail. So if I jump in with part two without having heard part one, it might feel a little bit like jumping into the deep end. So it might be um, it might be good to to go back and listen to the first talk if there's stuff that doesn't um, loop around. Yeah. So um, just in a like a, a two minute or a three minute overview of a forty five minute talk, you know, when we're talking about the whole um, spectrum of the topic of love, obviously this is a, a, a word which is know, a bit hackneyed and, and overused, and so it's it's hard to get a, a a real reading of what it means. And yet, when we look at the uh, territory of what we're dealing with, you know, we're talking about the the spectrum from um, the the need to learn to trust and to bond, and the kind of uh, love and the friendships that happen as we are uh, little and grow up and are adults, the kind of uh, affection and love for family or for partners, and the kind of, of, of love that happens when it's not so directed at an individual person, but more an expression of a kindness and a well-wishing for others without it being localized on a particular individual. And then it can also include, the, which, which is also an expression of the kind of uh, bhakti or ecstatic love or devotional love where one's heart is filled with the fire of passion for uh, one's beloved as an embodiment of the transcendent. And so when we're talking about this enormous spectrum, you know, inevitably there's going to be places in it that are going to light up for us in terms of what we need to take care of and, and uh, pay attention to and work with. And, you know, one of the things that is a, a fascinating uh, juxtaposition of psychological health and well-being and Buddhist concepts of letting go is, is that the, the whole premise of letting go is built upon having a solid, intact, healthy psychological sense of self from which we have the capacity to reflect, to discern, and to let go with or from. And yet, when we look at our own experience and we look at some of the people that we know and we look at the... Not, not often with the people that I know that it came out of, out of malintent, but through circumstances, that there's significant 
fractures in that sense of, of psychological health and well-being that we're dealing with. And for many of us, issues around trust and around safety and around uh, the ability to just completely bond with another is then affected by early imprints that we have, some of us had, have lived with from early childhood experiences. So we take this kind of an issue into, uh, into an experience where we're looking at the language of letting go of self, and we transpose on top of a deep-seated longing and hunger to feel connected and bonding into this languaging of letting go and letting go of desire and letting go of attachment. And we're talking about things on completely different levels that need different languages and different approaches for them. So what's really helpful is to begin to get a sense of, well, what is the, what is the stuff that we're talking about and what's the right way of dealing with each level when we're there. So when we're talking about things like pers- like um, attachment disorders where there was not sufficient safety and protection as a child or as an infant or as a, as a very young person growing up, then there needs to be quite a considerable amount of care to develop the circumstance, the conditions that support the arising of safety, of trusting, of the ability to, to know that one's needs will be taken care of. And that work has different components to it than the kind of work where we're letting go of a fixed identity or an attachment to things belonging to me and to mine. And so there needs to be a certain amount of sophistication about what are the different levels of this whole spectrum and some different levels of resource and tools and skill to be able to address issues that arise at the different levels because it's not like if you have a hammer it's the only tool that you need you know it's great for nails it's not so great for screws you know and there's all kinds of other places where it's absolutely not what works so in developing a certain amount of sophistication in our own meditation practice in our own psychology we begin to get a sense of the different things that are needed yeah So let me tie that then into community dynamics. So one of the hungers that we long for is a sense of uh, safety, a sense of kinship, a sense of affinity, a sense of um, shared values, a sense of a place where one can relax and feel welcome, a sense where, you know, what one uh, aspires to is, is supported and encouraged. And yet what happens is, is, is that any time you have community, you have a group of individual people who are making that community. And as a result of that, then what you have is all of the undigested stuff that's inside each individual person that's oftentimes ricocheting off between each other. And that ricocheting effect can cause heat, Sometimes it can cause affection. Sometimes it can cause passion of attraction or passion of aversion. And so then what is needed is to recognize that, well, that actually is what happens when you have a group of people together. Nothing has gone wrong. That's natural. And then what is needed is the skills and the resource to be able to start looking at, well, where are these things getting activated? 
And how can we respond to that to bring that into our practice so that it supports awakening rather than supports fracturing or dismantling a sense of trust or cohesiveness that a group can share? Now, it's quite classic that when a group forms, it forms on an inspiration, on a high, on this lovely feeling of the joy of being together. And that lasts for a period of while and then changes. And what it changes into is the rub of it doesn't quite sit right or there's difficulties with this person or that person or I've got a different idea about how it's supposed to go or what the leadership is supposed to do. And so it moves from everybody coalescing around a shared aspiration into a sense of of the perceptions and feelings in our own experience juxtaposed against each other rubbing and causing heat. And then some people say, well, you know, I'm out of here. This is not what I signed up for. You know, I signed up for a nice group where people take care of each other and it's friendly and it's like, you know, when it's not, I'm gone. But the truth is, is is that this is part of being alive. And this is what happens when groups form, is they go through periods of growth and they go through periods of exposing the fractures or the weaknesses that are present in the group structure itself. But when one was gathered together around the principles of inspiration and aspiration, they were not visible. And as this stuff starts to become visible, people often get shaky because sometimes people get really hurt or they feel very put out or they feel very exposed. And, you know, and, and what one is moving with is the sense of, well, but I'm, what I'm doing is what feels the most important thing for me to be doing according to my own values. And so then there needs to be a kind of collective interest to make use of a situation in order to take whatever challenges have happened or whatever hurt has happened, whatever dismantling of trust has happened, in order to recreate a fabric which uses all of that experience as part of the process of awakening. What happened? How did we get here? You know, what was said, what was done, how did we get here, and what do we need to do in order to transpose this thing from being icky, you know, painful, smelly, get me out of here, to compost, which turns to, like, black gold that is, that is fertile and worthwhile and important for the individuals and the group to begin to get a stronger sense of a fabric of how do we all work together, how do we sort out our conflicts and difficulties, and how can we keep coming back to the common ground of trusting that the bottom line is is that everybody wants to wake up out of suffering. You know, how do we keep coming back to that place? And I can certainly share from my own personal experience living in a community of sisters that this has been a phenomenally rich and complex area of growth. Now, in my community that I lived in for 20 years, the community had been in existence for 10 years before I arrived there. When I got there, it wasn't a safe place. You know, it was actually really a scary place. But because 
you know, those of us there, for whatever reasons, were committed to staying. We were willing to work with it in that context and see if we could distill the jewels from something that had all kinds of complexity and difficulty within it. And in our specific circumstance, what ended up happening was is that there was a, a deep inquiry to look at our own individual personal responsibility into the mix. So it's inevitable that what happens when there's conflict is, is that there's internal patterning that's getting projected outward. I was talking the other day and somebody was saying that when there's an argument, it's my parent is arguing with their parent. I mean, that's a kind of a very simplistic way of looking at it, and I don't necessarily know that that's always accurate. But what happens sometimes when we get into these places is that we're not actually present with patterning, which we are aware of. We're operating from patterning from the past as it's coming into the present. So our skill level and our resource level and our sensitivity level shifts into something which is often present for a much younger person than the body that we're inhabiting now. And so the work that we did as sisters was to begin to look at this in a concerted way, both as individuals and as a group, and to begin to use that as part of our practice. And it was tremendously valuable. Because then what started to emerge out of you know, this ability to coalesce and fracture, coalesce and fracture, coalesce and fracture was we actually developed the ground to support that both the individual and the collective to be with what was actually present for them and to use it as a platform for further growth, for further development of, of safety and trust in the group, develop of capacity in the group, and development for the individual to begin to get a handle on what their own internal patterning was and how they were responding from it. Now, obviously, you know, in a situation where you're living in a monastery, as alms mendicants, where there are very, very, very few options to leave, it's like either you get with the program or being out of here means that your whole life turns upside down because it meant disrobing, or it meant leaving the community and wandering as a solitary. So the commitment to try and work with it in that context was high because the alternatives that we had were really, uh, had very considerable consequences. And yet, when people are willing to do that as a group, it's incredible what happens from the stuff which ends up being fractured or frayed or hurtful can be turned around and transformed into a fabric of trust and safety that then the group can feel and learn to relax into. Now, the second element of the topic that I talked about last week had to do with the issue or the topic of sexuality. And and, you know, what I said in that talk is, is that it has never ceased to amaze me how infrequently and poorly handled this topic is by meditation teachers and Dhamma centers across the board. You know, I've been meditating for 30 years now, and I can count on 
one and a half paws, the number of conversations that have been public about this topic, and most of them were like, you've got to be joking. <laughs> you know, what does this have to do with this territory and my experience of it, you know? It's like nowhere near the depth or the complexity of what it was to actually navigate. And again, in this whole topic, you know, the spectrum runs from profound injury to absolute union with everything. And it is worth person's interest and inquiry to begin to bring this whole topic not as an intellectual subject, but learning to work with the energy and the body experiences so that it is actually part of one's practice. And one learns to move from that which is less skillful to more skillful, that which is driven by coarse desire to that which is more subtle, refined, interested in kindness and respect and compassion, and then opening up the heart and the mind-body experience so that one can feel what it's like to be at one with, and one is no longer a me being at one with it. The meanness falls away and there's just a sense of unification. And so I talked about, you know, the ways in which this whole topic can be addictive. This whole energy field can be addictive because one is using sexuality and sexual experience, sexual intimacy, in order to meet the needs of connection, in order to meet the needs of bonding, in order to meet the need of being at one with, which one cannot sustain in that kind of experience. So in the, you know, I've heard people say, and there's some truth to it, you know, that celibates are just having, they're just repressed with their sexuality. But I've also heard monastics say, well, people who are sexual are just repressing their spirituality. And I don't think it's either, but what I think is is that it's not a question of making categorical statements. It's a question of being intelligence and sensitivity and inquiry into this experience as a body, mind, body, felt sense in relationship with self and other. And it's here where this whole topic opens up. Now, when we swing back around the topic of awakening, you know, for me, there's different levels of what awakening is. So one level of awakening is awakening to what is happening right now. It's the truth of what is happening right now. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way I think it should be. It's not my idea. It's how it actually is. And how it actually is is sometimes very sobering. Sometimes it's incredibly joyful. Sometimes we need to break the chains on our heart to see how exquisitely beautiful it is because what we're actually mostly dealing with is a compression underneath a 20,000-pound stone. And so when we actually open up to feel the, the joy and the beauty that's present, it's scary because we're used to being tight and contracted and compacted. So the truth of the way things are and the right way of responding to these things is one level of awakening. And in that level, it is completely congruent to meet everything as it is 
and respond to it with as much skill and resource as we can muster individually and collectively. And yet sometimes it's helpful to take a look at what the scriptures have to say, what the enlightened beings have to say about their experience of awakening. And then begin to see if we can hold open the space where we're neither dismissing our own reality nor that reality. And see what happens if we can hold open our own mind, heart, body, space so that we are allowing the fullness of what we have, what we know, what we live with, and then begin to get a feeling for what is this possibility of awakening that those who have realized it speak about. So for that reason, I did some preparation, which is rare. I don't usually do preparation, but I did some preparation, and I picked out some classical readings that illuminate what the teachings on awakening have to say. So I want to read you this passage. This is um, Questions of King Melinda. So Nibbana is the word that's often equated with the realization of the end of suffering. Or it can be another way of describing awakening. And so there's this first thing about, can you make it clear in a form or a figure or an age or a dimension what this Nibbana thing is all about? And so Nagasena says, it's, it's, you, you can't describe it. It's like anything else. It's impossible. And then the king says, if Nibbana really exists, it should, it, it, should be, it should be possible to know it from its form or figure or age or dimensions. So tell me why you can't describe it that way. So Nagasena says, is there, great king, such a thing as the great ocean? Yes, reverend sir, there is such a thing as the great ocean. If, great king, some man were to ask you, Oh, how much water is in the great ocean and how many living creatures dwell in the great ocean? How would you answer him? Or the king says, I would say to him, the question you ask is a question you have no right to ask. It's no question for anybody to ask. And that question must be set aside. It's impossible to measure the water in the great ocean to count the living beings that make their abodes there. But if the great ocean really exists, why should you give him such a reply as that? Surely you ought to be able to measure and count and tell them. So the king says, that question isn't a fair one. And so Nagasena says, great king, just as although the great ocean exists, it's impossible to measure the water or count the living beings that make their abode there. Precisely so, although Nibbana really exists, it's impossible to make clear the form or the figure or the age or the dimensions of Nibbana either by an illustration or by reason or by cause or by a method. A person possessed of magical power, possessed of mastery over mind, could estimate the quantity of water in the great ocean and number of living beings dwelling there. But that person possessed of magical power, possessed of mastery over mind, would never be able to make clear the form or figure or age or dimensions of Nibbana either by illustration or by reason or by cause or by method. 
And so he asked, well, if you can't do that, does it have any qualities in common with other things? He says, it doesn't have any form that you have is similar, but in the matter of qualities, there are some illustrations and examples which might be employed. Just as the lotus is not polluted by water, so also Nibbana is not polluted by any of the depravities. Just as water is cool and quenches fever, so also Nibbana is cool and quenches everyone's depravities. Water subdues the thirst of people and animals when they are tired and weary and thirsty and overcome with heat. In the same way, Nibbana subdues the thirst for craving for the pleasures of sense, for craving for existence, of craving for power and wealth. Just as medicine is the refuge of living beings oppressed by poison, so also Nibbana is the refuge of living beings oppressed by the poison of the depravities. Medicine puts an end to bodily ills, and precisely so, Nibbana puts an end to all suffering. Just as the great ocean is vast, boundless, and fills up, and it does not fill up for all the streams that flow into it, precisely so, Nibbana is vast, boundless, and fills not up for all of the living beings that pass thereunto. And then it goes on. So we're talking about uh, an experience or a realization of something which is beyond what normal language can define. And so one of the characteristics of awakening that we come back to again and again and again is not so much the qualities that it is described by, but the absence of qualities that it is recognized by. And so one of the classical characteristics that Nibbana is recognized by is the end of craving, the end of ill will, the end of delusion. So this is from the Terigata, this is from the Arahant first disciples, and this is from Sumedha. When the deathless exists, why court sense pleasures like burning fevers? Every sensual delight is on fire, ablaze, and seething. When a firebrand is in your hand, is a lit, let go, and you won't get burned. Sensuality is that firebrand, and those who don't let go get burned. This is from Vangasa. I burn with lust, my mind on fire. Please, Master Gotama, show compassion. How do I put it out? Warped perceptions are what keep your mind on fire. See through the glamour, igniting lust. See all compound things as other, unappealing, not self. Let your mountainous lust be cool of the endless burning. So this is another, uh, the Buddha's words, bhikkhus, this supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata. That is liberation through not clinging, by understanding as they actually are the origination, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of the six bases of sense contact. So, you know, when I read this stuff, my mind goes into an open space, but then I try and think, well, all right, so how do you square this up with the other stuff that we were talking about? You know, how do you bring this level of letting go into the immediacy of our personal experience when we're navigating the territory around love, around sexuality, around longing for community dynamics to be harmonious, and the angst that comes when they aren't that way. 
And so for me, my own experience has been around meeting things where they are at and learning how to be present with what is arising without identifying with it. And so in that way, the whole territory is welcome, allowed, and invited without judgment. And where the peace begins to start seeping through the system is in not clinging to identity, not clinging to an idea about how things are supposed to be, but in meeting things exactly as they are and learning to both bring a skillful response to what is arising as well as to learn to rest attention in the awareness that knows what is without absorbing into the object itself. Let me just read you a comment or a paragraph from Ajahn Chah that explains this. Lumpur Chah, so he's the forest meditation master who is the grandfather of the tradition that I came from. He continued on his wanderings looking for a peaceful place to practice until one day he reached Ban Kok Yao where he came across a deserted monastery about half a kilometer from the edge of the hamlet. His mind felt light and tranquil. It was as if there was a kind of gathering of forces. One night there was a festival on in the village and sometime after 11 o'clock while I was walking Jongrom or walking meditation I began to feel rather strange. In fact, this feeling, an unusual kind of calmness and ease, had first appeared during the day. When I became weary from walking, I went into the small grass-roofed hut to sit and was taken by surprise. Suddenly, my mind desired tranquility so intensely that I could hardly cross my legs quickly enough. It just happened by itself. And almost immediately, the mind did indeed become peaceful. It felt firm and stable. It wasn't that I couldn't hear the sounds of the merrymaking in the village. I could still hear them. But if I wished to, I could not hear them. It was strange. When I paid no attention to the sounds, there was silence. If I wanted to hear them, I could and felt no irritation. Within my mind, it was as if there were two objects standing there together, but with no connection between them. I saw the mind and its sense object established in different areas like a kettle and a spittoon placed by a monk's seat. I realized that if concentration is still weak, you hear sounds. But when the mind is empty, then it is silent. If sound arises and you look at the awareness of it, you see that the awareness is separate from the sound. I reflected, well, how else could it be? That is just the way it is. They're unconnected. I kept considering this point until I realized, ah, this is important. When continuity between things is broken, then there is peace. Formerly there had been santati, continuity, and now from it had merged peace. I continued with my meditation. My mind was completely indifferent to all external phenomena. So this is from an unpublished biography of Ajahn Chah. And then there's one more thing that I want to share. So this is the story of Bahia and his encounter with the Buddha. And the Buddha 
he was asking the Buddha to give him some instruction about what the path was. And he was, the Buddha was in the middle of alms round, and so he said, Bahia, you know, don't do this. It's not the right time. And Bahia said, you know, well, you know, we don't know how long life lasts for. This is the right time. So often is the case in these stories, the person repeats the question three times, and that's the context in which the, the sermon is offered. And so this is the Buddha's reply to Bahia. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. When Bahia, there is for you in the scene only the scene. In the herd, only the herd. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. Then Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. There is no you there. When Bahia, there is no you there. Then Bahia, you are neither here nor there nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. So when we are looking at the path and when we open up the territory to include the full range of our human experience, there is tremendous opportunity for a gradual path of cultivating virtue, of integrity, of resource, of generosity, of trust, of respect. And there's the possibility for opening up to the immediacy of a completely radical new relationship with things in the present moment. When there's the stopping to identify with what's arising, the thoughts, the feelings, the bodily experiences, the impressions, the moods, the sensations, there is just this that's arising. There's just this reaction to what's arising. It's all happening in a flow. It's not me. It's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. Then in that non-identification is the possibility of a new relationship with what is. Not based on fear. Not based on desire to acquire power, position, pleasure. Not based on the longing to not be, to get out of here, to get rid of, to cease to exist. All of it is arising and known. All of it is open to. All of it is felt fully. And without any identification, it seizes in its own time. And in the seizing of identification is peace. So, how does this relate? Is it relevant? Is it not relevant? Does it make sense?